The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. You guys can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, that song is true every day, and there's never a moment when we move past that. And Lord, thank you that we can cry out and say that we need you, and you will always be there. There will never be a moment when you leave us in silence, when you leave us in despair. You give us what we ultimately need, which is salvation, which is reconciliation with the Father. I thank you that we can live in that confidence and hope. Father, I pray now as we approach your word, as we get to jump back into this amazing gospel story, as we get to see how Jesus interacts with those whom he comes in contact with, Lord, help us to be humbled to be softened, to live in such a way that we emulate Christ as we see him here. Just be with us now. In your name, amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be jumping back into the gospel of John. For those of you who might be this is your first week joining us, just want to catch you up on the conversation. We've seen Jesus begin his ministry by looking at the religious leaders, by going to them and saying, listen, what you've been trying to accomplish, what you've been trying to fulfill with all of these rules and regulations is fulfilled in me. And he went to um, Jerusalem, he went to the temple, he went to the good people first, and he said, who who you're looking for is me. Well, after his ministry began to um, create a stir among the Pharisees, he moved to Galilee. Well, in order to get to Galilee, he had to walk through the land of Samaria, which takes us to our story this morning. John chapter 4 is a conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. And as we discussed last week, if... Any good Jew would avoid having this conversation. If you would assume where Jesus was going to go, you would not assume he was going to go to Samaria because Samaritans are Gentiles. Samaritans are half-breeds. Samaritans are unclean. No good Jew would spend time with a Samaritan. But we saw that Jesus, instead of avoiding Samaria, entered into Samaria and went to a well and there picked up a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And we saw how amazing that was. Because we saw that Jesus was, was willing to bring the gospel message, the gospel of grace, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Because where we saw last week at the end of it, we're in the middle of this conversation, but where we ended last week, it was that Jesus offered living water to a Gentile. Now the Jews were expecting living water. Because as we saw, that's what, they were, that's what they've been waiting for. This living water that was going to satisfy their souls, that was going to cleanse them of their sins. It's the thing that the prophets of old had been looking towards. And here Jesus says, if you ask me, I'm going to give you living water. And if you were a good Jew reading this story, you go, wait a second. Gentiles aren't supposed to get that. Well, what we're going to see today is that while last week's segment of the story was shocking because Jesus was willing to go to a Gentile. It's gonna get worse and it's going to become even more shocking. And I trust that we're going to walk away from the next section of the passage and even more so go, hallelujah, what a savior, because he's willing to go to her knowing what he knows about her. So with that, I'm gonna pick up the story where we left it off. We're in John 4, 16. We're gonna go down through 26. It says this after he said, okay, Give me, after she says, well, give me this living water so that I won't be thirsty. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on the mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. But God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And he said to her, I who speak to you am he. At the beginning of the story, we learn that Jesus was sitting next to this well on the sixth hour. And the sixth hour is noon. They would begin to count the hours of the day starting at 6 a.m. So you'd count up six hours and that would be noon. That would be at the heat of the day. Jesus, as we said, was weary and tired from his journey. So he sat down at this well. Now, we, what we could draw out from the story last week was a woman should not be going to a well at noon because that's the hottest part of the day. And so you don't want to do the heaviest work, the hardest work at the hottest part of the day. You want to do it early in the morning or late in the evening when it is the cool of the day because the job inherently becomes easier. And culturally speaking, the women from town would go out from the town together as a group and go to the well. They would draw the water. They would put it in buckets. They would carry it back. It was a communal event. That was, the, that was what would happen. Everyone would go there. They would have their time around the well. They would fellowship together. They would have their conversations. They would go back home. They would do the work around the house as it was in the heat of the day. But we saw the Samaritan woman drawing water in the heat of the day. So immediately we knew she has been rejected. What it indicates is that the women of the town of Sychar did not like her. Whether it was implicit or explicit, she knew I should go draw water well after the crowd has passed. That should be about noon. So we knew that she was rejected. And we knew that Jesus approached her. We saw the delight that was on her face. It was refreshing, if you will, because she thought somebody is willing to have a conversation with me. I mean, imagine if you knew I have to go to the well when no one else was there. That thing inside of you is going, no one wants to have a conversation with me. No one wants to be with me. I mean, that is a rejection that few of us know. And if you do know it, I'm sorry. We knew she was rejected. But now we get to see in this passage why she was rejected. It comes in a... In a um, question that she thought she was going to be able to avoid with Jesus because he goes, go call your husband. And she thought, oh, I don't have any husband. That, that's going to be uh, done away with. I don't have to give more details about that. But then Jesus, if you will, uh, reveals who she is. He goes, you're right in saying you have no husband because you've actually had five husbands. And the one that you're now living with isn't your husband. Imagine if you want to hide that thing that you are ashamed of because it has ruined your life from anyone that you possibly can. And imagine if you think to yourself, finally, I can have a normal conversation because this guy must not be from around here. So he must not know about my past. If he didn't know about my past, he would reject me just like everyone else. And then all of a sudden, this guy reveals all of your sin. I mean, imagine her mind going, oh, shoot. 
are you going to reject me also? So last week we saw that she was rejected. But this week, this part of the story, we see why she was rejected. But I want to offer a couple of different ways that we could actually interpret these details of the story. Because in interpreting them differently, it, it, hits, it hits at different people and at different lenses. We know that her marital state was disastrous, that she's had five husbands and the one that she's with, the man that she's with now is not her husband. She's currently living with somebody she's not married to. She's had five previous husbands. And we can assume that everyone in town knows this and because of that has shunned her and is staying away from her. But why has she had five husbands? It's actually two possible reasons. I guess a third, she could have had five husbands die on her. That's probably not it. There's two reasons. The first one would be because she's an adulterous woman. Because she keeps falling into infidelity. Because she keeps being unfaithful to her husband. I mean, this is pretty self-explanatory. She keeps running off towards men that aren't her husband, that maybe she was a prostitute, maybe she was never satisfied, maybe she just had something inside of her that was always looking for somebody else. Her reputation was one of promiscuousness. I don't know, sir, that's a word, just made it. And from that, we could all sit here in our righteousness and go, she deserves that rejection. She did that to herself. She should have learned by now not to have affairs. She should have tried harder to keep one of those husbands. She got to that state on her own accord. She deserves to be there. But there's a second way that we could read into this, very appropriate way. And it wasn't that she was an adulterer. It was that her husbands kept throwing her away. In this time and culture, divorce and remarriage had a very strict set of regulations surrounding it. In fact, one of the archaeological finds um, of our day is actually letters of divorce. Because when you got divorced, you needed a letter stating that, yes, that has gone down. I am free to either marry or I am not free to marry. It was very important that you had these letters of divorce. And it's one of the archaeological finds that a variety of different nations um, used. But both Jewish and Samaritan law had very clear standards about when and how a marriage could be dissolved in divorce. But these laws gave almost 100% of the power to the husbands. And what was also known about these laws is that husbands had this way of discarding women they didn't like. You burn the soup, you're gone. You made me angry, you're gone. You put on weight, you're gone. I mean, petty, petty things. Things that these husbands should have been slapped for and taken uh, out and, I don't want to say stoned for, but taken to, to, to court for, and yet they would just reject their wives. The wives had no power at all, but the husbands had all power. So we could also read into the story that this woman had gone through many, many husbands and had a trail of tears behind her because she kept being rejected. Imagine. That's your history. It didn't happen once. didn't happen twice. didn't happen three times. didn't happen with your fourth husband. didn't happen with your fifth husband. Now, she's with a guy who views her or could view her as such where she's not even, um, she doesn't, she's not even worth marrying. 
I mean, she's been a victim of an abusive system where husbands can freely divorce their wives, leaving women used and helpless. And it had gone so long that her most recent man's like, you know what, let's just skip the whole marriage thing. Could be that. She didn't bring that on, on herself, but she feels the misery. You know, it could be very easy for us to judge this woman, and it could also be very easy for us for our hearts to break. But regardless, what we see in this woman is one that her life, according to the culture around her, is worthless. She's been pushed to the side. You know, it's interesting. She's been married five times. I don't know many people that would try, that would give marriage a go for five times. I mean, it's a feat just to make it there. And it, what tells me is that her intensity in pursuing yet another husband demonstrates the intensity of longing for fulfillment in her life. She's just trying to satisfy her soul and she thinks a man will satisfy it. So let's try again. And she keeps winding up in the same state of dissatisfaction. She keeps being left in despair. So regardless of how she got there, whether it was from her own sin, and we can say, you deserve it, or it was because she's been thrown around, I think the two words that best described her is despised and rejected because no one wants to be with her. Let's take this information about this woman, this no-name Samaritan woman, and lay that over what we saw from last week. We saw Jesus eagerly presenting his grace, this living water to a Gentile. And we saw that regardless of Jew or Gentile, he's, he's offering this hope that he has. Yet now, as we lay that information over this offering, what we see is that he's offering it to a person with a reputation of shame and sin. And what we see from this story is that Jesus didn't offer that last week in this section without knowing it. It's not like he goes, go and call your husband. And she says, well, I got something to tell you. I don't have a husband. I've had five husbands. And the guy I'm living with now is not my husband. No, she didn't tell that. Jesus told that. So when Jesus offers her the grace that he offered her last week in this hope of ask me for living water and I will give it, he knew that. And here's the thing. I don't think we would offer that. Clearly, her neighbors, the fellow townspeople would not offer that because her reputation was sin and shame, was, was despised and rejected and nobody's coming to her. It took Jesus going outside all of the other cultural bounds to do something that made everyone else shocked. Turn to Matthew 7 for a moment. Because the one word that I, I keep coming to mind with this whole story is judgment. Because she's been judged hardcore. That's why she's at the well by herself. Matthew 7 takes place in a, a, a section of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mountain. The Sermon on the Mountain is when Jesus, on a mountain, sits down, there's a huge crowd in front of him, and just begins to flip their lives, the, the, their Jewish religious lives, on their head. Where we think the strong are, are the best, and Jesus goes, no, the weak are the best. We think that it's... Um, you know, the works of our own hands, he goes, no, you have to trust in somebody else. Well, here's what he says at the end of that in seven. He's talking about judging. Judge not that you be judged. 
Good religious people love to judge. I just got to say that. I, I, that's a confession. But good religious people love to judge. Judge not that you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see a speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can it be, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First you take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus, for a moment, talks about judgment and saying, you guys are being a little hypocritical here. You're worried about the Samaritan woman sitting next to the well because you look at the trail of tears behind her. You want to judge that. Look at her. She's had five husbands and now the one that she's with isn't even her husband. But also in this, uh, Jesus says, hey, adultery isn't just um, physically doing something. It's lusting in your heart. So now do you want to talk about how many times that you've committed adultery? But look how he continues this. It's kind of, verse six in this section is a, is a like, you, it's a little jarring. It takes a turn where you're like, where'd this come from? And then seven is a whole different subject, if you will. But here's what it says. Do not get, give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I've heard this verse interpreted so many ways and applied in so many ways. And the vast majority of application of this verse is make sure when you offer Christ's grace to somebody that they are able to accept it. Or make sure that they are the, the person that you actually want to accept it. So make sure you judge the other person before you offer Christ's grace. Here's what's fascinating about this verse from a Jewish perspective. Do you want to know what Jews called Gentiles? Dogs. They called them dogs. Dogs in this culture were unclean, just like Gentiles. They turned their nose up at them and they said, you aren't good enough to be given what I've been given. They looked down their noses and said, if you knew what I knew, you would not want to be a Gentile. And they, they could take this verse and go, yeah, we're not going to give what's holy to the Gentiles. We're not going to throw our pearls, our beautiful pearls of redemption towards the swine of the Gentiles. Look where Jesus is at. He is sitting next to a Gentile. A Gentile with a reputation that is, from an earthly standard, despicable, saddening, regardless of how she got there. And offering her what is holy what is gracious, not something that, not saying, hey, come be like the Jews and clean up your life, but saying you desperately need living water because clearly you were trying to satisfy your life and the way that you're going to find that satisfaction is not through a sixth husband. It's through me. I wonder if... Next week, we're going to see his disciples come back, and then we get, to, we get to talk about how the outside is going to view this situation. But we see Jesus continually flipping the culture of the day on its head. Jesus is constantly going to people that didn't fit the mold of the good Jewish life and the good Christian life and offering them grace. Just for a moment, I want to lay over our Christian culture 
with what's going on here for a minute. The Christian religion offers a perspective of how to master life. I want to preface that for a moment. The Christian religion, not Christianity. That's something different. The Christian religion that we have spent a while at, at making and conforming and, and working on all the finer points have offered a prescription on how to master the Christian life. There's an unwritten code of conduct, is there not? About what to do and not do. About how to look and not look. About who to be and not be. There's this, there are these expectations that we have to keep up to have our best Christian life now. As I was a good church kid, so I grew up under this, thinking, okay, I'm going to go to a summer camp, or I'm going to go to youth group, and I'm going to get saved, and I'm going to go talk to some counselor out on some porch late at night, and I'm going to have that salvation story, and then I'm going to be baptized, and I'm going to go off to a good college, and I'm going to meet the right person, and I'm going to marry them, and I'm going to have the two kids, and the white picket fence, and the dog, and then I'm going to apply all the right laws and standards to my home, and my kids are going to grow up, and they're going to be good people. I'm going to attend church every Sunday, and I'm going to apply the teaching, and I'm going to have a happy life. And it's all going to go well. That's, that's the expectation for good Christian religion. If you apply these things, life will go well for you. The Jewish system was the exact same system. From an early age, they said, if you apply these laws, if you do these things, if, if you master this stuff, you are going to grow up and it's going to be great with you. What happens when it doesn't go well? What happens when you're this Samaritan woman that's just trying to find a loving relationship with her husband and she marries bimbos five times and they keep rejecting her? What happens if at the end of you trying to live the perfect Christian life, you wind up beside a well at noon because everyone has rejected you? Our Christian religion normally doesn't have an answer for that. Because in the Christian religion, we go, God has rejected you. But what we see here in the gospel is that there is an answer for that. It's not Christian religion, it's Christ. When we say, I've been cast off and rejected, what Jesus says is, I accept you and love you and offer you the same grace that I give those good Christian people. Jesus didn't switch his message when he went from the Jews to the Gentiles. He's not going to switch his message when he goes from the Samaritan woman to the woman caught in adultery to uh, the, the military leader to Peter, James, and John. It's all the same message. What's the message? You are all in desperate need of what I have to offer you. I mean, imagine if the townspeople came to this well. It says, well, again, look at it next week. His disciples came back first. But imagine if a townsperson came to this well and they saw Jesus and the Samaritan woman having this conversation. Here's what's funny. Uh, this is a, it, it's, so um, some commentators have wrapped this interaction with Jesus and the Samaritan woman in, this, in the cloak of a betrothal narrative because one of the things that can be seen in Scripture is there, there, are, uh, there are three notable betrothals that happen at wells. It's Isaac, Jacob, and I forget the third. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm doing this off, off the uh, top of my head. And so they, they always say that like when, when Jesus says, give me a drink, it's like him entering into this betrothal type conversation. Can you imagine if one of these townspeople came back and they saw Jesus and this woman sitting next to this well having a conversation, what they would think about what was going on? Oh, she got another one. It's about to be seven. 
Oh, I wonder what they're talking about. Is he trying to lure her into a sin or is she trying to lure him into sin or what's going on here? But Jesus is willing to even enter into the idea of this might look on the outside a little wrong, but that's what she needs. Imagine what the townspeople would say of Jesus if they knew who Jesus was. Get away from her. She's going to ruin your reputation if you're seen with her. Good people don't associate with her. That's why she's at the well by herself. Yeah, Jesus knows exactly who she is. And Jesus knows exactly what she needs. And Jesus comes in and offers her the exact same grace that he's willing to offer the good Christian person who hasn't fallen into her particular sins. He's eager to sit with her. She didn't stumble upon him. He sat down at that well knowing she's about to walk down that road and that's what she needs. You might be here this morning and this story resonates with you because you've tried to satisfy your life in a number of ways. You might not have five husbands and be living with a person who's not, it might not fit, you know, perfectly. But resonate with the thought of, I'm just trying to satisfy that longing in my soul. When can I finally stop and say, I have enough? When can I stop striving and using things to fill this void? The answer is it's Christ. And I'm sorry, but nothing on earth will ultimately satisfy that. Nothing. You can try. But there are books and verses and people and examples in scriptures to demonstrate that you can, you know, it's like Ecclesiastes. You can get to the end of all things. You can try everything. What's it going to say? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The only thing that satisfies is Christ. Maybe you're afraid. You came in this room and you thought to yourself, what if the person next to me knew about that thing I was struggling with? What if they knew who I truly was? Would they reject me? Because I get it, Christian religion. We come in here and make sure everything's, make sure we're, we're, we're buttoned up. We hide all of the destruction behind us. We come in here and we fake it till we make it. But that's not Christianity. Jesus doesn't come for the person who has it all together. He comes for the person who is despised and rejected because he himself was despised and rejected. I think of Hebrews 12, one and two. It says this. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And hear this. For the joy that was set before him. So, he did two things. He endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he came to take on flesh so that he could die on the cross. And what was he doing on the cross? He was bearing the weight of our sin. Imagine Jesus sitting next to the well, reading this litany of, yep, you've had five husbands and the one that you're not with now is not your husband, thinking to himself, and I'll pay for that later. And not out of anger, but mercy. And I will pay for that later. 
All of your ways that you've tried to satisfy your life, that's actually sin. I'll pay for that later because that's what he did on the cross. Took all of our sin upon him and endured the cross. The worst part about the cross was not the nails, was not the thorns, was not the whips. Those were bad. The worst part about the cross was the wrath from the Father being poured out on him. But then look at the second thing. Despising the shame. What does that mean? He looked at the shame of that woman at the well at noon because everyone else had had rejected her and said, I'll take that. I'll be your savior. You might be thinking today, I'm beyond help. The shame that I carry cannot be taken away, but it can. And it was on the cross because Christ came and he bore that shame, literally saying to the Samaritan woman, you're good. Imagine how long she's been waiting for that, for somebody to look at her and go, you're good. And that's what Jesus did. He comes along and goes, you're good. I know that you've tried hard and that you've made a lot of mistakes. And I know that you look back on your life and you think to yourself, how stupid could I have been to try it again? I've been there. And yet Jesus looks at you and goes, you're good. I mean, you're not good. But what you need is found in me. The life, the perfect life, the shameless life, the life that, 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 is, that is above reproach is not found in you. It's found in me. And I will give you that life. I will declare you righteous, not because of what you have done, but because of what I have done. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. I mean, this woman's life was fundamentally changed in a 10-minute conversation or however long this went down. But prior to his closing off this section, I want to look at verses 19 to 24 because there's some really cool connections that Jesus makes as he explains salvation. This woman, after hearing, holy cow, you, you knew how, about my sin and shame. He says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. AKA, I didn't tell you that, so somebody had to tell you that. Prophets know things that no one tells, so therefore you must be a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but I say, to you, but I say that in Jerusalem is a place, sorry, but you say in Jerusalem is a place where people go to, ought to worship. I mean, she hears that this is what people do in shame. They, they hear something that hits their soul and they go, let's talk about this over here. That's exactly what she did. Jesus nails her and she's like, I can't bear that. That's the thing I've been trying to avoid all my life. Can we talk about some theological things? So Jesus goes there. Woman. And again, this isn't woman, this is woman. Grace, believe me, trust me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. AKA, who cares about that question? It's not that temple or this temple. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Just for a moment, hear that. Salvation is from the Jews, not for the Jews, from the Jews. What's that mean? From the very beginning of the redemptive story, 
It has always been a story about God saving, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, not just his chosen people, but the entire world. Because how did Genesis 12 start? The, the father of the Jews, Abraham. And the Lord now said to Abram, go into your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make you a great nation, so that you will be blessed. The Jews stopped there. Religious people stopped there. This is for me. How does verse 3 continue? I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What Jesus is saying to the Samaritans, like, listen, I know you don't like them because what they've done for you. But they've got the answer. Because the answer is me. Because yes, the Jews were the instruments used to proclaim God's salvation to the world. Yes, the Jews were the seed into which the church grew. Yes, it was from the Jews, but it was not for the Jews exclusively. It was for the entire world. Now, what's this distinction though? Because he goes, it's not about the temples. It's about the true worshiper. 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus makes a distinction between worshipers and true worshipers. Allow me to make this distinction. Between the good religious people that just go through the motions and show up when they need to show up and sit down when they need to sit down and stand up and know what to do and all this stuff and those who actually have placed their faith in Christ. They were placed... You see these good Jews, the religious among us, replace faith with duty and work. Some of you may have showed up here to church this morning because you thought, good Christians go to church, I gotta go there. <laughs> you need to go to church, but not because it's a duty, but because it's a blessing to be within the body of Christ and to hear his word proclaimed. They proclaimed that the only acceptable worshipers were those who kept up the good life and had the outward standards. They were Jews or they became Jews. God doesn't care about that. God cares about the true worshipers. And who are the true worshipers? Those who have faith in Christ. I wanna read a quote from D.A. Carson because it just makes everyone sound smarter. So I'm gonna read a quote from D.A. Carson about this. It says, it's the worshipers whom God seek, worship him out of the fullness of the supernatural life they enjoy, spirit, and on the basis of God's incarnate self-expression, Christ Jesus himself, through whom God's person and will are finally and ultimately disclosed, truth, these two characteristics form one matrix that is indivisible. There's no way to get away from that. Spirit and truth. Just as we close, just consider again just the beauty of this message. She came to the well being cast aside knowing she wasn't enough. Jesus says to her, I don't care where you come from. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how ashamed you are. All are welcome with me. She came to the well thinking she was beyond hope. What a desperate place to be. A regular Tuesday thinking no one, no one wants to be with me. Even the other sinners, no one wants to be with me. Jesus says, well, you're not beyond hope because you messed up beyond fixing. He says, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll live the life that you can't live. 
for you. And I'll give it to you. Now this, this changes everything in, in her world in a moment. And I'm sure her head is spinning. And, and this gets us to the last two verses that we have to cover. The woman said that to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And I'm sure she says that because she's like, listen, I know that there's somebody coming that's going to speak amazing words. And these are amazing words. And when he gets here, I'm going to judge his words by your words because that's hard to grasp. And how does he answer? I who speak to you am he. The words here can be translated, I am is speaking to you. Ego a me is speaking to you. And that construction, that Greek construction, ego a me is very important. Because that Greek construction harkens back to Exodus 3, when Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God goes, I am that I am. Because God can't have a name. I am that I am. I, I just am sent me. This also is a highlight of what is to come in this book because John 7 through 10, we're going to have, I'm, this is going to be an exciting section of John, is going to be this whole thing about Jesus just ticking off the religious leaders of the day because he comes into Jerusalem and he goes, I am, which is a stonable offense. If, if anyone else comes up and goes, I am God, I mean, it's literally like saying, I am God. And, and it's, it's the most intimate version of God's name you could possibly use. I am. So he kept walking around going, ego a me. And these good religious Jews were like, no, that's not possible. You can't be God because that blew his mind that God was standing in front of him. But here, Jesus goes, if you're looking for the Messiah, God is speaking to you. Which adds a whole nother layer to this thing. Because if God's going to come to earth, he's going to go to the throne, in our mindset, he's going to go to the throne rooms and the people that deserve it the most. Not the despised and rejected sitting by a well in the heat of the day. But that's where Jesus goes. As we just wrap up this morning, if, if you're here and you fit this mold of being cast off, downtrodden, rejected. I haven't done enough and can't do enough. Maybe you know the dissatisfaction of your soul more than, more than anyone else. Let me tell you, the answer is not something else that you create with your own hands. The answer is found in God. And if you are here this morning thinking, I've done too much, I can, I can never come back. My reputation is too damaged. If you knew what I knew about me, you wouldn't let me in the doors of this church. That's what you're thinking right now. The answer to that is, that's foolish. Because God knows the depth of our sin more than even we know it. And he still accepted each and every one of us. I don't have time to read it. I told the sanctification class this morning. But... Isaiah 64, 8 through 6. You can read that on, on the way home. It describes our righteous deeds as dirty rags. So if you're sitting here today thinking, I belong here, I got this, I'm good to go. The 
actual answer is none of us can come in here. Everyone comes in with the exact same position. Thank you, Lord, for saving me because I don't deserve it. So we approach the table this morning. If you are visiting with us this morning and you know Jesus as your Savior, we welcome you to take this meal together. It's a family meal, if you will. It's, it's how we as a body center our minds on the finished work of Christ. If, if you're not a believer, if maybe you're coming to church for the first time, still, still wondering what's this thing all about, we just ask that you let the plate pass you by because we don't want to confuse you. This meal doesn't save you. This meal is a celebration reminding us of the finished work of Christ. And, and I would ask this, at the end of the service, come find me. I'd love to talk about the gospel more. I'd love to answer any questions that you might have about this Jesus guy. I'd love to tell you about the amazing grace of Christ. Let's pray and we can take this together. Father, thank you for your word, for the gospel. Thank you that we as sinners, desperate sinners, can come to church knowing that we belong here, not because we have aced our week, because we have cleaned up our life, because we haven't fallen into any particular sin, because we, have, we don't have five spouses. Thank you that we know we come here because of what you have done. Each and every one of us look to you for our hope and for our satisfaction. Father, remind us of that truth every day. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.